from 11FS. This is Fintech Insider News. Today, SME lender Alica Bank secures £55 million in equity and debt round. Backbase earns a €2.5 billion Euro valuation. And electronic musician Deadmau5 is launching his own online bank. All this and more in today's show. But first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. Full Circle is the customer lifecycle intelligence platform that's helping companies in financially regulated industries do better business faster. Financial institutions are under pressure on multiple fronts. Customers are demanding better experiences, competitors are making a grab for market share, regulatory scrutiny is fiercer than ever, and the cost to acquire and serve is high. Full Circle's new white paper explores how customer lifecycle intelligence can help companies find the right customers, accelerate onboarding, and keep them for life. Download it from the link in the podcast description. Welcome to episode 638 of Fintech Insider. My name is Benjamin Ensor, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by my 11FS colleague, Guerra Kawana. How are you doing, Guerra? Hi, Benjamin. Doing okay. It's nice and sunny today, so... Not yeah. in the studio, but it's glorious Not in outside. The studio. It's lovely outside, yeah. I got my bike out for the first time in a while, so yeah, it's feeling good. Always nice doing these in person with you. And the Wi-Fi is a little bit better than... <laughs> a lot better than it is at home, yeah. A thousand times better. As always, we're joined by some very special guests. Uh, making a debut on Fintech Insider, we have Keshvi Radia, Head of Product for Payments at Alica Bank. Welcome to the show, Keshvi. We'll get into your news in the show a little bit later, but can you give us an introduction to you and Alica Bank, please? Absolutely. Great to be here. Uh, so as you mentioned, uh, my role at Alica is Head of Product for Payments. I'm really passionate about finding simple solutions to complex problems, and it's a great place to be at Alica at the moment. My day job at the moment is preparing to launch our really exciting current account, um, which is coming shortly, so keep your eyes peeled for that one. Alica's uh, mission is really to build banking products specifically designed for established SMEs, hence the love and complexity is really important here. And we're out here trying to kind of redefine relationship banking using modern technology um, to best serve quite an underserved segment, really. Fantastic. Exciting stuff. Welcome. I'm also delighted to welcome Tim Rutten, Senior Vice President of Strategy at Backbase. Thank you so much for being here, Tim. Um, Again, we've got your news coming up, but can you just give a quick introduction to Backbase to the small proportion of our listeners who might not have heard of Backbase? For sure. First of all, thanks for having us on the podcast, uh, Benjamin. It's great to be here. So let me just first uh, explain the problem that we're solving here at Backbase. Basically, if we zoom out, then in today's world, we can only conclude that everything needs to be customer first. Customers are expecting these ultra fast and seamless experiences, similar to how you use your Netflix or your Spotify or any of these big tech applications typically. And Backbase is basically a fintech company that helps banks and credit unions to rapidly digitize their customer as well as employee facing operations, allowing them to create these types of seamless uh, journeys, just like you would expect from these big tech examples that I just shared. So what we essentially help them with is rather than them trying to rework their business around outdated technology, um, where they're usually stitching their existing point solutions from multiple vendors together to try and service that customer holistically, um, they can now actually instantly leverage the power of a cloud-based engagement banking platform, which we typically call an EBP, uh, which fully powers the customer lifecycle from onboarding to servicing to digital lending uh, to indeed uh, improving share of wallet. 
And with Backbase, it basically allows you to uh, put your customers back in the heart of the business, or as we say it, re-architecting your bank around the customer. Well, welcome. I love a customer-first strategy. I'm also delighted to welcome Soren Abelhammer, CEO of MazePay, uh, first time on Fintech Insider. Welcome to the show, Soren. Can you give our audience an introduction to you and to MazePay, please? Sure. Hi, Benjamin. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, first, I think it's important to state that uh, based on our business, uh, 1% of corporations uh, globally actually account for more than 90% of the total payment volume. volume. And at MazePay, we are focused on these large corporations, helping them get control over a large part of their unmanaged spend. Uh, initially setting out with MazePay, we engineered from day one with a global partnership with MasterCard and using their payment rails. And obviously, they're much more than cards in the B2B space. And we also, as part of this arrangement, we actually have them introduce us to commercial banks and major issuers. Uh, this in order for us to team up with the commercial banks and making use of their credit lines or relationships already established. So we would say a sample of the current uh, uh, issuers and banks we are working with as partners is uh, Nordea, which is one of the, well, it is the largest Nordic bank, Eurocard from ACB, as well as a new global issuer, plus headquarter out of Germany. And also today I could say that thanks for having, on, for having us on, for, because to, it's a really big day. We've been granted a pan-European payment license, so we can now bring uh, our payment up to a whole new uh, place in Europe. So thanks for having us. Fantastic news. Congratulations. So welcome to welcome to all three of you. Um, it's a great pleasure to have you all. And of course, welcome, Guerra. <laughs> um, so let's get let's get into the news. So our first story is Alica Bank securing £55 million in an equity and debt round. This was reported in Altfi and various other places. So Alica, as you as you just heard Keshvi describe, is a UK-based uh, bank for SMEs. It's secured £55 million, uh, following on from £110 million in Series B funding raised last November. The capital is split between a 25 million equity funding round from existing investors, Warwick Capital Partners and Altaya Capital Management, and a 30 million tier two credit line from British Business Investments, which is an arm of the state-owned British Business Bank. Before we come to Keshvi on this, let's first hear from Richard Davies, CEO of Alica Bank, who we asked, considering the current climate, how different was this fundraise to your previous round? Now, the question everyone's been asking me is how different was this raise to previous rounds given the economic climate? I think there's no denying that it's quite tricky out there for fundraising. There's been a massive shift from the easy money of 2021 as inflation has hit and interest rates have risen, which has created public fintech stocks. I think where we've had an advantage is the combination of both very high growth with the fact we're about to start making material profits. It's a rare combination in fintech and now very much in demand, as blitz-scaling user growth has faded as the primary metric for success. It also helps that our lending is secured and to established companies, and so still performs pretty well if you stress test it for a severe recession. So we're really grateful for the backing and look forward to helping even more established SMEs as we go forwards. So, Keshvi, we're obviously going to come to you first. Um, this is a super interesting piece of news. It's Small businesses have sort of been left behind by the bigger banks, but there's quite a few um, digital banks trying to offer better services to them. So how how do you sort of differentiate from some of the other, you know, digital banks in the UK that focus on them, like someone like Oak North Bank or someone like that? 
Yeah, great question. Um, I think my answer really centers on what do you mean by small or medium-sized business? Because it's actually a really varied segment, both in terms of size, industry, complexity. I agree there's a lot of um, really great digital offerings out there, but they tend to focus on the sole trader or, or micro segment, uh, which is actually, I, I wouldn't say easy, but easier to service, especially if you scale up a retail proposition. It's that, it's that middle established segment that's really tough. You can't scale up a, a retail proposition. You can't scale down a corporate proposition. You really need something targeted for that segment. Now, most people might think that sounds fairly niche, um, but actually in the UK, at least, that's about a third of our economy. Um, so it's a, it's a fairly large uh, proportion of businesses that aren't being uh, tailored for and, and are being neglected on, on every facet, really. Your, your colleague, uh, Richard, was obviously just talking about the economic climate. Have, are you starting to see some sort of pain coming through from some of your clients as, uh, you know, the cost of living crisis starts to affect customers and so on? What's, what's the sense you're getting from your customers uh, in the last sort of couple of months? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think everyone's starting to feel the pain from this crisis. But what we found really interesting is the, a lot of these businesses that we serve were actually feeling the pressures of cost even before this crisis hit. When we've we've been speaking to customers over the last kind of eighteen months in in my vertical, and it's only something that's amplified. So it's something that's really crucial to us at Alica. You know, how can we try and give back to these customers um, and and kind of help them through um, and make things as cost effective as possible? It's it's something that with our current account, we're really thinking critically about. Um, you know, what is the proposition? Really, um, we should be paying these customers for doing us the privilege of uh, allowing them to bank with us, kind of thing. So. Uh, it's really central to us at the moment. Um, and I also think that the relationship manager comes in, in really key here for these businesses. They need someone that they can talk to when they're in crisis mode, um, when they're struggling not to call up a faceless call center. They need someone who understands them uh, and someone who can put them in touch with with people at the bank very quickly uh, to help them out of whatever situation they're faced with. Tim, I'm quite keen to, to bring you in, in on this because clearly banks like Alica have found a you know found a big gap in the market, and you know, it's fantastic to see you you know having so much success sort of serving serving that opportunity. But to some extent, it's you know the established banks have sort of left that gap there to be served by by new entrants like Alica. What have you, what have you been seeing among you know the many many banking clients that you have a bank base? I mean, is it right that everyone's just focused on retail banking and everyone, you know, a lot of them are ignoring the different segments of small business banking? Or is that an unfair characterization, unfair and superficial characterization by me? Yeah, well, I'm not going to judge your uh, statement here. But, <laughs> I, I would indeed say that it's, uh, it's not that black and white. Um, I would say that from five to ten years ago, you would initially see uh, incumbent banking institutions first fix their retail banking arm. Uh, that was the initial line of business that was just ripe for a digital transformation, just to make sure that the typical end consumer had a better experience. Um, but very much fast follow, uh, SME and uh, let's say corporate banking were the logical next steps because that's where usually the most uh, money is being generated in the bank. So it's not that black and white. And I would even say that uh, over the past five years, we've seen uh, a significant uptake in uh, the small, medium enterprise, uh, let's say business banking domain. Um, where these banks are very cognizant that they need to start improving their value propositions and they need to start improving their time to market. Um, and for that, we see a lot of our customers actually going for uh, a platform plate like Backbase to start accelerating on that journey. Uh, so it's not that they're sleeping. It's not that they're completely ignoring it. Um, but they do need to get their ducks in a row to actually execute against that uh, that type of ambition. Soren, we, we've got a number of, of 
you know, successful new digital banks like Alica here in the UK that are serving smaller smaller businesses and medium-sized businesses. Are you seeing that in your part of the world, in, in the Nordics and elsewhere? Are you seeing other smaller banks coming into the market and taking what you, you mentioned Nordair earlier? Are you seeing uh, some of the, the, the bigger banks sort of losing to, to disruptive digital banks? We are seeing, I think, the uh, the, uh, the largest player we are seeing in, in, on the play in, in the Nordic region is uh, Luna right now. Uh, I think uh, what they're more or less doing is uh, they're getting more or less the, uh, the, the larger banks uh, um, up in the gear, up in a higher gear. They have been uh, spending quite a, quite some time there, laying low and, and just doing the business. So I think it's it's good for the uh, for the more established business that these uh, new banks are coming online uh, and showing a. Uh, probably what they can do with much better user interfaces and also moving quite fast within the market. So I see this a plus both for, for I actually see this a plus for the older banks that they, uh, they're learning a lesson from them. Guerra, what do you think about this, this, this issue that Kashvi is talking about, about the pressure that, that SMEs are under? Do you think, do you think enough's being done? I, it's like Kashvi earlier, you, you talked about how you're interested in solving really complex problems and like, geez, business banking is like the, crown problem that a lot of people have tried to solve and you know i think for years and years uh if you do a google search everyone's been talking about how it's so difficult to serve smes and and businesses in general um i like i it is it is tough right there's no like um scalable single uh journey you can take all small businesses through um that's why we were seeing like a rise of niche banks right so like you know banks that support creators or banks that support um you know plumbers or or uh dentists or whatever but kasri i have a question for you like in in this news story there's like a bit of debt capital here right so and you've you talked a little bit about about like lending that you guys the, the kind of lending the fact that you guys are doing lending I understand that like for a lot of businesses right access to finance and access to to like finance financing is is really difficult how is Alica doing that differently and like or at least like unlocking capital for other for 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 your clients like what what's different for you for you guys yeah, really good question. I'm going to come back to this thing. I'm going to sound like a broken record. It's all about the relationship managers and and local networks for us. So it's about what is that financial ecosystem, um, that group of people in a local area um, that spread the word, that can connect you to, to people who might need capital or support, um, and then really leveraging those, those networks in order to make sure that we can connect our prospective customers, these, these small businesses, uh, with the right people at the bank. Um, it, it's very much a uh, not a one-size-fits-all type of question, which is why this question of um, finding a local network, which will be characterized by the area or the, the density of different types of industries, is really key. And it means that, again, we can embrace that complexity on a human level as well um, to, to try and connect people in the right ways. It's so interesting hearing you talking about the importance of, of people and humans and human relationships and so on, because everyone always thinks digital banks have to be all about technology. And of course, it's important, yeah. but um, fundamentally, these are still human businesses, right? Um, Absolutely. And I, I just add to that, I think a lot of people think technology has to mean bringing us apart. Uh, and, you know, the past two years with COVID, I think we have felt very separate from each other as human beings. But for me, it's about a question of we have all this great technology. How can it bring us together and do it in a way that's, you know, it, it works from a business perspective, but also the customer really feels valued. Um, again, as I think it was uh, Tim or Soren said, it's the gray area, right? It's, it's the middle ground. It's the compromise. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love that. 
Last super quick question then for you, Kashvi. Um, it's an interesting mix of debt and venture capital in your in your fundraising. Um, how, how does that work? Um, did, did, was that a structure you wanted? Did you have a choice? What was the um, what's the thinking behind raising debt as well as equity? I'm going to be very honest. This is not my area of expertise. I think you might have needed Richard for this one. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll let you off then. <laughs> okay. Well, in that case, let's move on to our next story, which is a bank base securing 2.5 billion euros, uh, sorry, 2.5 billion euro valuation after 120 million euro investment. Uh, this was reported in FinTech magazine and various other places. Um, Backbase, for those of you who haven't been listening, is a, is a banking architecture FinTech that's trying to solve the legacy problems of the financial services sector. The funding was led by investment firm Motive Partners, and it will be used to accelerate Backbase's effort to fix the banking sector's legacy tech problems. As uh, Tim has talked about earlier in the call, uh, most banks struggle with a patchwork of disconnected and outdated systems that weren't designed to work with each other. By partnering with bank base, banks and uh, other financial institutions can migrate away from some of these legacy systems and adopt Backbase's cloud-based offering instead. The result is a more connected digital experience for customers. So Tim, congratulations on the funding round. That's super exciting. I did not know that Bankbase had been bootstrapped up to this point and that you you know all the funding had come from yourself. So, you know, firstly, well done, amazing journey done that way. So so why was this the right time to start exploring funding? Yeah, perhaps to explain at best, uh, why haven't we done a funding round until this point, right? Um, and if you then look at how Backbase has been uh, founded and built up over the over the many years, um, you basically see that we're quite different from any typical startup or scale-up story out there. Since the beginning, Backbase has been extremely focused on the needs of our customer and basically building products that really satisfy uh, their problems and really help them be successful in that sense. This has always been the main priority. It, by the way, will remain uh, the main priority also after this funding round. Um, but interestingly enough, the whole bootstrapping uh, part of the equation is basically finding product market fit. So having small experiments and basically doubling down on those that really resonate with the market and then doubling down on them and really building a proper product to satisfy those needs and then start scaling based on that momentum, that's basically been the formula from day one. And that starts with understanding your customer needs and building an incredibly great product uh, towards those. Um, one thing that also helped us in that journey is the fact that the engagement layer, basically all the customer-facing interactions that are being powered by a platform like Backbase, it's a very strategic sell, right? It's not just an extra point solution in the corner somewhere that you can acquire. It's really strategic across the full financial institution, meaning the moment you get the buy-in from a customer, you basically lock in a very healthy amount of cash flow, and you can use that to start, uh, let's say, increasing your product efforts. And basically, you create a whole snowball uh, effect from there onwards. So we raised now because this was the moment where uh, we felt after all those years bootstrapping, we have product market fit. Like it is truly there. And with this momentum, it is the moment to double down on the vision that we have for a one single platform play. Um, and yeah, together with Motive Partners, that was just uh, yeah, a very happy timing and uh, yeah, very solid uh, partnership to kick off. I can see Guerra nodding a lot as you keep talking about product market fit. You're very, very much preaching to the product person. Oh, in yeah. the, in the <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But you're also saying, you know, you're saying this is a really good business to be in because once you become a sort of strategic partner to some of these banks, um, you know, you become really core to what they're doing for their customers and they're not necessarily going to want to let you go anytime soon. But that also makes your business a very attractive business for lots of other people, right? And there's there's more competition now than you had sort of five, ten years ago. You know, when you, when you started, you were maybe the only people doing this or, you know, certainly one of the first. And there's a lot more companies sort of snipping around the same market now. Um, Guerra, what's your take? I, so I have, I'm, I'm so curious, Tim, to understand, like, you, you guys have been in the game for a little bit, right? Like, like Benjamin just said. Uh, and like you said, like, there's a lot more entrance to the market. Lots more um, banks are kind of like, you know, digitally transforming uh, and actually genuinely like starting to take digital seriously. Um, and we, the work we do at 11FS, we, we talk to a lot of incumbent banks often about, you know, th- this kind of process. What you've been in this game for a while. What's changed over the last, like, let's say, like maybe 10 years in your conversations and the kinds of integrations? Are Is it like pulling teeth? Are you having Are you having to like do a lot of like, bringing your clients on the journey and like explaining why digital is important or are you met with like you know brick walls of people who are like well, we don't want to get an app we don't want to you know these distributed services we don't care about it like what, what's the what's the change been over the last 10 years can you give us like a bit of a story of, of what what that change has looked like yeah well the, the change has been uh, day and night almost um so 10 years ago we were really let's say pulling teeth if i may quote you uh, there um as in we were literally educating uh, the banking leaders and the executive teams that the time was now. It was time to start digital transforming uh, the banks and the credit unions that we were speaking with. However, they were not really that much into it. Uh, It didn't really resonate that strongly even, Um, meaning there was no mental commitment to actually go down the journey to explore what it would mean to actually go into uh, digital transformation and then later on reap the benefits. So we did a lot of education work uh, 10 years ago. And then as you go through the years that followed, you basically see the banks uh, and credit unions opening up to the reality check that others are actually doing it and they are gaining speed. They are way more uh, competitive. They're way more innovative. uh, They score way better rankings with their customer base. And all of a sudden you see a lot of different uh, players pop up in all the different verticals, usually starting in a niche that then actually snowball into other uh, capabilities and product offerings. And yes, then you all of a sudden have uh, a top of mind position, which by now, especially also uh, following the pandemic, it is simply a no brainer. So the education time is uh, is done. I think everyone is extremely aware. Um, And then, of course, the next question is how? How do you do this? Um, And that's where a player like uh, Backbase kicks in. Keshvi, I'm, I'm curious on your perspective here. Is, does Alica build all of its own software and do you, do you build all of your sort of front ends or um, do, you, do you have a partner partner for that? Do you see that based on what you were saying earlier, it was really people that are your differentiator. Is, I, mean, I don't want you to be rude to Tim, but is, is software important to you? <laughs> <laughs> Very good question. I, I think it, it, it's probably you can't win if you don't have really good levels of both. Um, and and I think so- software banking as a service uh, it's it's come on leaps and bounds. At, at Alica, it is something that we we continue to use. You know, when is it the right time to build something proprietary? When is there someone that's doing something so fantastic you can't help but say yes? And and building that right composable structure of uh, layers and 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 modularized pieces um, that are loosely coupled enough that you can you can change things and. And be flexible as you go. I think 
that's something that some of the the newer entrants, particularly in the in the retail space, have done very well. Um, some some of our, our, our big names, particularly in the UK, um, and and I think it then leads you along a, a much more flexible route later down the line. It, it leaves you open depending on what strategy you decide to take and, and how you decide to get product market fit, um, as we were talking about earlier. Soren, what's, what are your thoughts on this? Because there's there's a lot of people who who starting to say, well, actually, you know, the, re- the real challenge now is in the back end, you know, the, the, the front end, you know, the, the digital interfaces, those, the, you know, those are getting better. But you know, actually, it's the back end, it's all the payments infrastructure, it's all that underlying legacy systems. That's, that's the, re- the real pain. And I, I'm not meaning to diminish back-based, back-based doing a fantastic job. But do you think there's anything to that, that actually a lot of the pain now is in the back end systems and, the, uh, you know, linking into the underlying payment rails and so on? Uh, yes, I do. And, and I think it's a very valid uh, question. Uh, I think we are all, all most, uh, most parties are doing quite well on the, uh, on the front end part, uh, but on the back end part, what we've done is like we've taken some of the core and developed ourselves. And then we've been on the lookout for companies that can help us, uh, or tech partners that can help us actually uh, deliver the services we are not, uh, we don't have the time to build or the, or the financial ability to build. Uh, so we are working on that part together with a lot of partners. Um, and we think again, it it makes a pretty good sense. And and also, I think on the um, on the banking part, we are obviously doing uh, banking with uh, with with uh, I would say newer part, newer type of partners like uh, banking circles. We have to go that way rather than using a Nordic bank for that part, based on the uh, technology that we're able to provide us. So we had to look around uh, quite deeply in order to uh, to put the right uh, structure in place in the back end on our side. I, I've got two different directions. I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I'm, I'm tempted to go, and I'm, I'm tempted to ask Tim what he's what he's going to do with the money because 120 million uh, euros is a lot of money. I, I imagine you could have a big party with that. But actually, before we come to that, I want to come back to you, Keshvi, quickly, just on on this point about profitability because you were talking about how you know Alica is touching on profitability. Backbase, you've been profitable um, for for a while. Do you think we've seen a, we're seeing a shift in fintech now um, where profitability starts getting the recognition it probably should have had a long time ago? Absolutely, I, I do, and I, I think the the kind of uh, the market environment at the moment, the economic environment, and I think what we all know is coming to to kind of shock the economy probably plays a big part in that. Um, but I think there's also been for quite a few years now a lot of talk about vanity metrics um, and you know what what is hype versus what is reality. Um, so I, I think both of these things probably play into the fact that. Uh, yes, having appetite for your product is super important, um, but it's all about that intersection of customer needs and demand and viable business ultimately. And it's that sweet spot that I think people need to focus on rather than either end of the Venn diagram. Um, okay, Tim, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you the question. I'm sure you had a few beers, but what are you going to do with the rest of the 120 million euros? <laughs> yeah, we, of course, uh, we celebrate. It's been a major milestone for uh, for all of us globally. Um, yeah, the reality is that uh, we're going to start doubling down on a few topics where we're going to increase the bets that we're placing. Um, and that is in the lending space as well as in the banking as a platform space. We believe there's an incredible opportunity out there. And the way we look at it, if we zoom out, um, it's, it's usually the way we like to explain where the engagement layers sit. Basically, on top of everything that you see, you've got this engagement layer, which uh, I do hear certain saying, well, many have it uh, completely under control. I can already share that uh, typical incumbent banks, they're challenged with this because they've got this patchwork to deal with, right? So the engagement layer is very real. It's a very thick layer as well. There's a lot of business logic that is needed to build really great uh, seamless uh, journeys. 
Below that, you will find all the processing capabilities. For instance, the Mamboos, the thought machines. I believe we're going to speak to those maybe later. And then on, let's say the lowest layer, you have the infrastructure layer. What we are looking to do, and maybe that's a big statement for today, but we have a really big vision we're working on to basically take all those three layers that is called banking as a platform and bring it to the market in pretty much turnkey end-to-end value propositions for whatever type of bank or credit union or community bank that is out there. They can start small. They can piecemeal the different topics they would like to work on. But in essence, we're going to help this industry fix this formula because it's a daunting task. Um, and that's essentially the whole engagement banking revolution that we're uh, yeah, extremely focused on. So, yes, we had a party. And, yes, we know how to celebrate. It was great fun. <laughs> I can share the photos later, uh, perhaps, Benjamin. Um, but we are going to be uh, yeah, laser focused on making this happen. And that's, uh, that's just super exciting. Incredibly ambitious. Like, good, good. All the best. It's, yeah inspiring (laughs) absolutely all right we're just going to take a quick pause here while you hear from our sponsors and we will be back very shortly so we're going to go out on a limb here and assume that you're enjoying this podcast we're also going to assume that like us you're a fintech nerd and that our podcasts live events video series and documentaries keep you tapped into everything that's happening across fintech and connected to the fintech community So if you're interested in creating content that informs and entertains, then you should definitely chat to our media team and get in touch on sponsors at 11fs.com. How will Web3 unlock the future financial services and change the way we think about money? Our first ever Web3 report takes a deep dive into the biggest conversation taking place in finance. Unpacking tokens, stablecoins, ESG, DAOs, DeFi, regulation, and so much more. We also take a look at the opportunities it presents for your business. For crypto natives and newbies, head to 11fs.com forward slash Web3 report to download it today and get Web3 ready. Welcome back. Let's get into our next story. Instant payments top the agenda for Swedish banks, says P27. This was reported in the Fintech Times and various other places. 13 banks connected to Swedish instant payments solution Swish are set to test the Nordic payments platform P27 by the end of this year. P27 is described as the enabler of the API economy for the financial services sector in the Nordic countries. A joint initiative by big banks, including Danske Bank, Nordea and Swedbank, P27 is exploring the possibility of establishing a pan-Nordic payment infrastructure for domestic and cross-border payments in the Nordic countries and the euro. After nearly two years of painstaking implementation, P27 will soon be ready to transition from working with prospective participants to real customers. A transformation committee has already been set up in Denmark to facilitate the transition towards P27. To hear a little more about this, we reached out to Jacob Groth, Customer Relations Director at P27, to ask what this makes possible that wasn't possible before, and when do you expect this to become industry standard in the Nordics? Well, what does P27 make possible that wasn't before? Well, first and foremost, I think it's important to realize that P27 is a Nordic initiative. So first and foremost, what will be made possible is that we will enable banks to have one hop for exchanging all payments across the the countries that P27 will be covering, meaning that both domestic as well as cross-border payments will be cleared via P27. That will also enable cross-border instant payments. 
and it will enable the banks to significantly simplify their payment integrations and their payment flows in the future. When do we expect this to become the industry standard in the Nordics? Well, we have a rollout plan that is agreed with the sector in the respective countries. So this is happening in close alignment with the, with the current banks in, in the countries. And we already today have rollout plans that are being adhered to by the, the different communities. So we will start the rollout and going live by end of 22 with the first transactions in Sweden. And those are to be followed by more transactions by the batch scheme in Sweden during 23 and with the, the Danish schemes to follow according to the Danish Central Bank's plan to, to move towards target. And that will happen during 2025 and throughout uh, the 25 and 26, we will see a complete transition. And in the course of time, that will also include the euro payments. Soren, it makes sense to to come to you first on this. Um, as someone you know from from Nordic Payments, how how significant is this project? Is this a big deal? Well, I think the uh, the ambition behind this uh, project it actually captures the need for the standardization in cross border transactions and also getting data to end users, uh, both in consumer and and corporate. And hopefully, uh, we are going to see them enable the future with fewer hard-code infrastructure limitations and individual players can, can start making good commercial proposition on this. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested in seeing uh, how, how, how much they're going to live up to the ambition of this. It's interesting because I always think the Nordic banks have got a, a good reputation for, for collaboration because, you know, when you hear about a sort of committee organizing something, you know, that seems to, usually means it's going to be really slow. But actually, the Nordic banks, to be fair, like the Dutch banks as well, Tim, you know, have got a good reputation for, for, for collaboration. But do you think the, the Danish banks are sort of keen to, as keen as the, the, the Swedish banks? And, you know, what about the Finnish banks, and the Norwegian banks? Um, do you think this has got real momentum? Well, I'll say that the, generally the Nordic banks have also been good at collaborating uh, on infrastructure. We've seen nets uh, uh, in the Nordic area. It's a pretty good example of that. Personally, I have a history in that. And then again, I would say that P27 actually enables for a stronger collaboration across the Nordic countries uh, with this real time clearing and settlement. But again, I think with the ambitions they have set up, I think the time will tell if P27 can live up to the hype and all those change behaviors they are they're talking about. Soren, I'm going to come to you like... When it comes to cross-border payments, we often hear about how expensive, how slow, um, how, how, how you know, annoying they are to do. But, you know, when I think of the Nordics, I, I, those are not words that, that come to mind. How, like, how, like, to give our listeners a bit of an understanding of, like, what the cross-border payments landscape has looked like in the Nordics thus far, like, we already know that there, there are Nordic countries that have um, really great KYC standards. Like, what's taken so long? Like, also, like, how painful has it been uh, pre P twenty seven, it like is is this something that is is genuinely going to be used like by consumers by so like P two P payments potentially, or is it going to be used to settle like large, um, like large bank to bank transfers? I, th- I think we'll see a mix of it. But just to get back to the uh, the, the first initial question that that uh, initially what we've seen is actually for example Denmark where I'm based at. We have actually been able to do uh, quite well uh, on these types of the real time transactions for quite some time. Norway has come along quite fine, and uh, you could say that uh, Sweden uh, and a little bit of Finland have been lagging behind. Uh, so the general idea was actually doing the cross-border there because it is, has been kind of tedious and, and a bit expensive to do it, and that was kind of like the driving force for the ambitions for, for P27 uh, and the need to, to go along this road here. Do, do we think these kind of cross-border payment partnerships can work? Because, you know, European 
banks and European companies more widely don't have a brilliant reputation for collaboration. I mean, if you look at the payments infrastructure in Europe, a lot of it's run by American companies. Um, I'm going to sound like a European nationalist. I don't think there's <laughs> such a thing as a European nationalist. Um, but, you know, can, <laughs> can, can, you, can Europeans sort of make this happen? What do we think? I, I don't know. Because, like, I mean, the world runs on SWIFT, right? And SWIFT is American. That's like, you know, the USD. Uh, but, you know, I think with 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 the, you know, collaboration we see in the Nordics and, and um, you know, th- sweeping uh, legislation like PSD2 across Europe, the EU, uh, if, there's, if there's a continent or at least like a region that could pull off instant payments and instant settlements um, in the next 10 years, I'd say it's Europe. What do you think, Tim, as a, as a Dutchman? Well, as a Dutchman, I'm uh, a bit uh, spoiled because we have a really uh, solid set of instant payment capabilities here in the Netherlands, but also in Europe, uh, of course. Um, yeah, there's there's many of these, industri- let's say, initiatives across different regions, and we always tend to monitor them. But until they get critical mass, they, they're basically irrelevant for, let's say, a player like Backbase to engage with them or to have a solid opinion on them. I think overall, it goes without saying, cross-border payments are currently too slow, too expensive, and hence cumbersome. So that needs to be solved, right? So if I look at it from that angle, it's a no-brainer to solve that particular problem uh, space. Uh, Whether P27 is going to take off long-term and whether we're actually going to see, for instance, a specific integration to that particular network, time will tell. Um, Curious to learn uh, how the pickup is going to be and whether there's enough support and incentive to actually roll it out, make it happen, and then maintain it from there onwards. What do you think, Soren? Is Tim right to be a little bit a little bit skeptical? Uh, skeptical that's perhaps unfair. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah, I think Tim is right. Uh, I'm being a bit skeptical on this one. Uh, we still have to still look at one six, uh, primarily six banks, large banks here, they have to work to agree on things. Um, and we know that historical success uh, has been defined by an active implementation. Uh, then my key concern is if P27 will be managed to realize the true potential of the initiative, uh, it, it, it is to be seen if there's going to be too many compromises made between those players here in order to have a true product we are, we are hoping for coming out there. So I hope, hopefully they're going to live up to the ambition they set forward, but I still think there's a lot of agreements and hopefully not too many compromises to be made between them to get the right product out of it. Do we think we'll see central bank digital currencies sort of before we see this bear fruit? That's a, that's a big uh, question, isn't it? We've, we've got not, don't get me started. Uh, but uh, the big C word comes in, right? Like crypto uh, <laughs> is coming in. Is P27 too late? I don't know. <laughs> don't get me started. <laughs> Kashvi, do you have any thoughts about that, about cross-border payments or international settlement and all, any of that? It's a really interesting one, isn't it? And I think it's going to be super interesting to watch, especially as um, on a more macro level, countries start to look a bit more inward. Um, and it feels like those kind of tendrils of uh, globalization are starting to retract slightly. So the question for me is almost going to be how much of a demand is there going to be for for these kind of mass transfer technologies and, and networks? Um, and I think at a macro level, you know, coming back to that question of customer need and demand, We've almost seen a huge peak of globalization, and and that was despite the slowness in in the transfer network. So, you know, what's going to happen there is going to be super interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very very interesting to see how that plays out. All right, let's move on to our next story. Thank you all on that one. Um, so our next story is that Starling has snapped up a 500 million pound mortgage book 
in a shift from COVID loans. Uh, This was reported in the Financial Times. So the UK's Starling Bank has agreed to acquire a mortgage book worth £500 million as the digital bank attempts to broaden its assets beyond um, COVID-19 loans. The startup Digital Bank, founded by Anne Bowden in 2014, is buying the loan portfolio from specialist lender Masthaven, according to people familiar with the matter. The acquisition will help Starling, which counts Jupiter Asset Management and Goldman Sachs among its investors, to diversify its lending away from the government-backed COVID loans that constitute most of its assets. Starling has come under the spotlight in recent weeks after Lord Theodore Agnew claimed it was one of the worst banks for preventing fraud in the UK government's emergency loan schemes. The bank has denied the allegations by Lord Agnew and asked the Conservative peer to withdraw them. Ooh, you love a bit of politics. Um, why are mortgage books such an important purchase? Guerra, why do they need mortgages? I, so I'm I've, I'm coming fresh off a project at Love NFS we worked on with, with uh, a mortgages business. Um, and as someone who's never purchased a home in my life, and I don't really plan to purchase a home anytime soon, learned a lot about mortgages. And I learned, as a product manager, learned that, like, I came in as a product manager. I was like, there's there's all these problems and there's all these, you know, there's all these edge cases. And then I took a step back and I was like, everything is an edge case in mortgages. Like, every, there's no such thing as a happy path. There's no, there's no way to scale mortgages in a really nice way. So, but, but on the other hand, mortgages are a large massive part of uh, revenue generation for banks. So it's it's kind of insane that the largest re- source of revenue uh, for banks is also the most incredibly complex and like almost impossible to scale um, as a bank. Maybe as a broker, it's a different story, but as a bank. So I, I think it's I think it's important that that Starling, you know, I think Starling is kind of entering their grown up era. You know, they're they're growing up and um, becoming a, a real. A, well, they've always been a real bank, but a real bank and uh, taking on this mortgage book and 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 starting to to you know take on this kind of these kinds of products. It's going to be a boost to them who are already profitable. Like, I don't know if the news came out, was it last year? Anne Bowden uh, said that Starling are already profitable. But Keshvi, what are your thoughts around this? Like, do you, do you feel like Starling is entering the big leagues um, by, with this with this mortgage book um, play? Yeah, it's a super interesting one, isn't it? Um, I, I think it's, uh, it, it's a really smart move from Starling. Um, they've got, you know, really cheap cost of funds already with loads and loads of deposits in their, in their super popular current account. Uh, I've used it myself. It's fantastic. Um, and now they're doing exactly what, you know, a smart person would do that, which is, um, you know, make some money and, and purchase a mortgage book. Um, interestingly, I'm seeing parallels with what we did earlier in the year at Alica. Um, tail end of last year when we acquired uh, a mortgage book from AIB. Again, exactly what you were saying, Guerra, you know, everything is an edge case. And I think it really comes down to, can you get that fit between that mortgage book um, and your existing business? I think that's the name of the game. And if you can make that work and uh, and there's a fit there, then, you know, it can it can accelerate things massively. This... this um complaint about the, the handling their their loans uh the, the sort of covid loans um what I, I maybe missed this story was were the bounce back loans badly handled i mean i know there have been a lot of scandals in this country so for, for international listeners i mean a lot of scandals in this country about you know the way the government purchased all sorts of things during the you know during, during the crisis um was were these bounce back loans badly handled? Um, did you- so, um, shout out to Matthew, our producer, uh, who's pointed out that you know the National Audit Office, you know, has estimated that five billion pounds out of the forty-seven billion pounds lent through the scheme could be fraudulent. That's quite a lot of money. Yeah, that's 
I mean, and that that's also just like I, I feel like that number may not even be accurate because fraud is fraud, and like every you know, everyone accepts fraud as like a risk, but like we really there's no really no way to tell <laughs> the extent at which. Um, but Tim, uh, how how do you, how do you compare? Uh, how does this compare with with like the schemes in your country, for in 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 the Netherlands, for example? Were there lots of stories like this of of um, fraudulent uh, rec- recovery, COVID recovery loans uh, floating around? So there was a big push coming from uh, the government perspective as well, um, very similar to what was happening in other uh, countries and regions. There's always going to be a level of fraud, right? Uh, but what the Dutch government went for is first of all, we're going to 100% trust everyone who goes for one of these uh, COVID relief loans. And once they are in, and once we are in a better uh, position to start assessing these loans, uh, so we start double-checking your uh, your tax filings, uh, your typical income statement, and so forth, then we're going to decide whether you're actually uh, eligible to, to keep it. Um, and there you've indeed seen a whole uh, <laughs> slew of companies who were not that qualified for that loan. And yeah, they are essentially on a payback uh, uh, type of situation currently. Correct. Yeah. But I think that's just natural for how this crisis unfolded and the speed at which these loans had to be disbursed. Um, yeah, there was simply little infrastructure to really keep it uh, yeah, to really keep it clean from that side. Was it a similar story in Denmark, Soren? Yeah, yeah I think the uh, uh, Tim story out of the Netherlands pretty much uh, matched what we saw. So uh, at least I can speak from, from the Danish point of perspective. Uh, it went very fast. Uh, we saw the loans coming out, and, and obviously there was uh, no back history of checking and doing this fast enough. And uh, now they're kind of like uh, getting some of the loans back. And yes, we've seen some fraud, but I think uh, we did quite well. And and uh, and now we just to 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 figure out the fraud and wants to get the money out of it and get it back again. But it was very similar to what I'm hearing from Tim in, in, in the Netherlands. I want to come back to this point um, you were making, Guerra, about about Starling Bank sort of growing up, and maybe I can ask you know the, the, the two ladies. Do you do you think um, do you think we're going to see Starling going public? Um, is this uh, you know is this a sign of sort of growing maturity that they're trying to scale up the business? Um, if you had to bet on it, what would you think? I, I I can't bet on it. As a customer as well, I would like to see them. Well, I, I wasn't able to buy shares, unfortunately, but I, I would like to see them go public. But Keshri, they are a direct competitor to you guys, right? I mean, just with their business banking specifically. Are you guys having conversations at Alica Bank about uh, about Starling? And um, I mean, what are you, because they, they have notoriously um, also come out and said no branches we're not going to have any branches we're not going to really rely too heavily on like human support uh try to be scalable with it like what are your conversations you're having that are differing um between alica and starling yeah it's definitely a tough one for me because as a customer i absolutely love them Uh, but at the same time yeah (laughs) yeah we're we're trying to do something very similar and i think it's really going to come down to how we differentiate ourselves i think there's room for more than one digital bank for this huge segment and maybe you know sometimes they'll do do things better and, and we might do things better um I, I think there's more more than enough customers out there for everyone but i mean coming back to your point of uh will we see them go public my bet would probably be yes my question would probably be when and i think it's probably going to come down to what happens with the economy uh, and whether it makes sense timing wise um you know i think that that's the question everyone's asking at the moment aren't well, they? yeah the economy, yeah, that thing that's going on right now. <laughs> it's the economy is stupid. All right. Uh, well, let's wrap that up. Uh, 
Unless, unless you want to go on a quick rant about Anne Bowden's comments on crypto. <laughs> Not, <laughs> today. 2020. Not, All right. Not today. So we'll, we'll wrap that story up and we'll move on to uh, the part of the show where we quickly round up uh, some of the other stories from the week uh, that we don't have to, time to cover in full, but deserve a shout out. Guerra, do you want to go first? All right. So this came from Tech Cabal, was also reported in many other places. MFS Africa extends its Series C by $100 million, bringing total to $200 million for this round. So MFS Africa is on a roll. One week after the mobile payments fintech announced the acquisition of U.S.-based GTP, Global Technology Partners, they announced the close of a $100 million Series C extension. This new financing doubles its initial Series C raise of $100 million, and MFS Africa says that the extension will help accelerate their expansion plans across Africa. So its integration into the global digital payment ecosystem, its expansion into Asia, and growth plans for Nigeria and beyond. So the company made headlines last week when it announced the acquisition of the American firm GTP, which is a super rare move for an African financial services provider acquiring an American company. Uh, they are absolutely on a roll. Like these guys have access to, what, about 400 million African mobile wallets across the continent. These guys have been known for being, you know, a, a gobbler. You know, they're a startup that that just has gone on an acquisition spree across the continent buying the likes of Bionic um, and basically linking up different kinds of uh payments platforms across the continent to to create their network that, that that is quite dominant on the continent across the continent of Africa which is you know historically has been quite fragmented so the fact that they've bought an american company which and and on top of that also raised some more money just leaves us thinking like yeah these guys are doing something something's happening <laughs> like i'm excited to see what, it, what 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 happens so for more on mfs africa's recent news go check out episode 636 of fintech insider news where we caught up with the ceo dari okuju at money 2020 in Amsterdam. Okay, next up, Kaisha Bank and Microsoft are exploring the metaverse. This was reported in Finextra and elsewhere. So Spain's Kaisha Bank is partnering with Microsoft on an artificial intelligence innovation laboratory that will, among other things, focus on building a work environment in the metaverse. AI specialists from Kaisha Bank will collaborate with developers, data scientists, and machine learning experts at Microsoft's AI Research and Development Hub in Barcelona. The partners will work to create interactive virtual environments, metaverses, that offer immersive experiences for hybrid work environments. Earlier this year, Kaisha Bank's digital financial lifestyle offshoot, Imagine, became the first European fintech to open a site in the metaverse. Um, if you're looking for more Metaverse Madness, go check out our bonus episode of Fintech Insider, The Metaverse is 1% Finished, which was recorded by David Breer and Jason Bates, entirely in the metaverse. Um, I have almost no words for this story. <laughs> I think it's fantastic that you know they're experimenting and exploring, but uh, there's a bit of me that's thinking, hang on, you've got all these developers, these data scientists, these machine learning experts, these brilliant people... Is there not is there not a more important problem to get them working on? I mean, I get that, that virtual environments are tricky. I get that remote working and hybrid work is difficult, but I'm not really sure what problem they're solving. And having brilliant people without a clear problem always seems wasteful, but maybe I've misunderstood uh, what they're doing. So I hope to be proven thoroughly wrong, which is a frequent occurrence. Guerra, back to you. Thank you. 
All right, so this came from Bloomberg. Shopify loses early big investor over rising competition. So Shopify, one of Canada's uh, startup darlings, has lost one of its longtime supporters after Mayware Investments Management's Vijay Visawanathan said he exited the stock after concerns about rising competition and risks in e-commerce. So the Ottawa-based Shopify became Canada's most valuable public company during the pandemic, soaring above $200 billion in market value. But the stock has since plummeted 75% this year. So Mauer first invested in e-commerce start software provider in 2017, uh, two years after it went public. But the business of e-commerce is getting crowded, as he says on a podcast. He cited a move by Amazon to combine payment and fulfillment services and make them available on other websites as well. So a direct encroachment into Shopify's turf. Viswanathan said... We're seeing a slowdown in e-commerce, and we're seeing a slowdown in the results at Shopify. It became harder and harder to justify this valuation. I mean, this is kind of like a story around the pullback that we're seeing, um, and the you know in in fintech and in tech in general, uh, and it, unfortunately, it's manifesting in in layoffs. It's manifesting in um, investors pulling out. Uh, Shopify, you know, their stock price was just flying high for so, so long and definitely a very valuable company, very valuable product. But yeah, there's no ignoring the fact that Amazon could easily tomorrow just, you know, enter their turf and just eat their lunch. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if you want a deeper dive into Canada's fintech scene, go check out Fintech Insider Insights, episode 611, with guests Clario, National Bank of Canada, and Brim Financial, as well as Coho were on that show. It's a really, really great show. Go check it out. Okay, before we move into our final story, just a note that applications are now open for 11FS's six-week paid internship. You'll get the chance to work alongside and learn from some of the brightest minds in fintech, as well as a couple of people like me, um, and helping to solve real problems along the way. For more information, go to design.11fs.com slash interns. Okay, let's bring everybody back for the final story of the week, which is that Deadmau5 is launching his own online bank. Canadian electronic music producer Deadmau5 has announced a partnership with banking, NFT, and digital currency company Zytara for a branded digital banking project. Users will be able to employ Deadmau5-branded physical and virtual debit cards at over 45 million merchants around the world. It's a Visa or a MasterCard. Um, additionally, Deadmau5-branded banking app, including a variety of Deadmau5 skins applied to the Zytara app, will allow fans to connect with the artists' online stores, merchandise, concerts, pop-ups, and in-game purchases. Zytara was founded in 2019 with the technology company's banking services provided by the Ohio-based Sutton Bank. Deadmau5 said in a statement, no one else is thinking about banking the way they are by making it easy to hold and transact in crypto, NFTs, and stable coins in addition to fiat currency. So, is this just a Zytara account with some extra branding? Is this a good thing? Um, Keshvi, what do you think? Uh, I'm, I'm going to have to be a bit brutally honest on this one. I, I feel like uh, Deadmau5 is trying to ride the crypto Web3 NFT wave and maybe get himself a few more followers on on this one. What do you reckon? What do you reckon, Tim? Um, are you going to be rushing to get one of these accounts? Honestly, it's been many years that I saw the name of that mouse on my screen. So <laughs> let's start uh, there. But uh, no, I'm, I'm in full agreement with Cashfee. This is yet another, uh, 
yeah, let's say marketing focused uh, initiative riding the wave that at this moment is coming splashing down uh, <laughs> in essence, right? So yeah, let's leave it at that. Soren, is, is this a good thing? Do we do we need more musician branded banks? Is that is is this a solution to the world's problems? That the, the bank from your musician? And uh, no, I don't think so. And uh, we have also seen that uh, we saw, for example, Luna when they started branding with one of their new investors, uh, where they had Will Ferrell uh, branding their stuff, and it's fun all along. But uh, I rarely see it's going to come up to any business whatsoever. So yeah, I just see this as a brand or marketing stunt. That's about it. Right. Is is there a musician that you would trust to um, run any part of your finances or even a musician with a song that might in some way encompass the state of your finances? I think uh, Dr. Dre is not a bad, uh, <laughs> a bad one. Jay-Z. He did well. Jay-Z did pretty well. But I mean, this, like, this story also like, made, made me think of Tim because of how like the democratization of like financial services, like these guys can just spin up a branded account like that thanks to Bass platforms, you know, like Backbase. Uh, so we're, I think we talked about, we've, we've heard people talk about this kind of stuff for years and years and years. Now we're actually seeing it. And it's like, okay, we've gotten enough, enough, no more. Like no more, maybe we've gotten the too far in the democratization of uh, financial services. But no, I, I, yeah, I don't know. Who, which which musician would you would you get? I, I was just thinking about how, how sort of dangerous it is because potentially, you know, maybe younger people or people who are really not thinking about it, you know, they like the musician and they start piling in. You know, we've already got problems with social media where influencers who don't really talk clearly about what they're doing are encouraging to people to do things that are maybe a bit daft, maybe not good for them or maybe outright bad for them. Um, you know, to your point, Keshvi, this is a pretty slippery slope. Is this going to encourage people to just pile into stuff they shouldn't be thinking about? Um you really don't want to know about my music taste. It's not interesting. Oh. <laughs> I'll find out and report back to the podcast later. Yeah, you talk to my children and I'll be, okay. you'll, you'll be very disappointed. <laughs> okay. Um, I think that's us. So that wraps up this new show. Thank you so much to today's fantastic guest. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Where can people find out a little bit more about you? Keshvi, let's start with you. Uh, if you want to hear a bit more about me, uh, check out my LinkedIn. Uh, not that it's nearly as interesting um, as if you check out Alaka Bank's LinkedIn, because there's much more going on there. So um, check out what we're up to. We've got a lot of big announcements at the moment. And our website, alaka.bank. Very inventive. Soren. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, I would say look up MacePay and, of course, myself on LinkedIn. Uh, our website is macepay.com. And, of course, we're always up for conversations for corporates, processes, and payment landscape. So. Welcome. Tim? Yeah, I would say uh, look us up on backbase.com. Similarly, look us up on LinkedIn uh, and the other typical channels. Again, there's also uh, with us a lot of uh, cool announcements coming up. So stay tuned, stay close. If you want to reach out to me, just put uh, my three-letter name in front of it and you'll find me. That's D-I-M. And Guerra. Awesome. 11fs.com. Also on Twitter, at NotGuerra. And I'm Benjamin, and you can find more about me on 11fs.com or on LinkedIn. So thank you to all of you for for listening. Um, Please join the conversation on social media or email us at podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you very much, and goodbye. Goodbye.